Not everyone has felt the same way about uh, things as regulations have been relaxed. But for a, a number of people in the UK, I've been watching expressions of joy as the COVID regulations uh, subside. I've seen folks, or I've seen on television anyway, the folks queuing up at midnight, just desperately keen to get into the dancing, into the nightclubs again, and their enthusiasm about all of that. I watched on Match of the Day last night, the, the, the joy of football supporters being back in the stadium, and indeed the joy of the players in having them back. People have been pleased about being able to go out for a meal, foreign holidays, as more things open, as well as, of course, seeing more of family and friends. And then churches too, and we will have our morning services from, within Claremont here again from next Sunday, the 29th. We got used to things, and then when they weren't there, we did not like it. And then when they opened up again, there was joy. But it was nothing compared to the joy of the people of Israel when they could come back from the exile in Babylon. They had had not 18 months of restrictions coming and going, but had had years and years of exile. They didn't have a few opportunities, a few liberties taken away from them. No, all home comforts were removed. They didn't have an inconvenience here, an inconvenience there. They had much, much more. Their whole identity was in question. Ezekiel had faithfully proclaimed God's message to them, a word that God was with them in exile, a word that said that God had judged his people and the removal from Jerusalem was not due to God taking his eye off the, the game for a while, but due to their unfaithfulness. It was judgment. But even in judgment, God's love meant that he was not going to give up on them. But there was a call for repentance to seek him again and to reshape their lives again around God's ways. God, you see, had removed the religious props that they had held on to. The people had got used to them. They began to ignore what the rituals and the signs and the buildings were pointing to. And they needed to see beyond these things, see beyond just the temple and the temple rituals and laws. They needed to see that beyond these, there was a relationship with God. For us too, it's not, you see, church, church meetings, church activities, church buildings that matter most. At best, they are tools, resources, means to help us have and to grow a living relationship with the living God. Now, it was the rekindling of that living experience of God that were behind Ezekiel's promises we looked at last week in chapters 36 and 37 pointing to a new heart, pointing to the Spirit of God being given to His people. And these promises were not just for those in exile, but they also pointed further ahead to more of God's action in the world and to the final coming of the kingdom of God where life in all its fullness, where life in close fellowship with God would be enjoyed and celebrated beautifully, passionately, fully, bodily. Now, chapters 40 to 48 of Ezekiel are the final section of the book, 
And it's another vision given to him that fills out more of the wonder and glory, not simply for the exile's return, but the final triumph of God over a spoiled and fallen creation. In the first of the readings that John read for us in chapter 43, the focus is on the temple and the return of the Lord and His glory to the temple. Now, in part, that's an undoing of what was in Ezekiel chapters 8 to 11. Back in Ezekiel chapters 8 to 11, and we looked at chapter 8 a few weeks ago, there was that building of God's leaving here, God's moving out, and He's moving out because of the people's unfaithfulness. And it's a warning to churches like ours, our denomination, that compromising with other faiths, that giving in to other value systems like materialism and consumerism, that tolerating heresy, and you've only to look in the letters pages of the current issue of Life and Work to see that, that tolerating heresy and these other things had driven the Lord out, had brought God's judgment then, and it seems had brought God's judgment now. That's the presence of God that's the key thing about the temple. The temple in Jerusalem was not in the first instance just somewhere to go to have services, not somewhere where they, <clears throat> they should just turn up and be wowed by how great it was, but it signified and symbolized the presence of God with His people, not just the throne, as it said in, in verse 7 of chapter 43, but also the soles of the feet. This is where God touched earth. Now, the presence of God is the key and, and characteristic blessing of the gospel. So, for example, in Exodus chapter 33, we have, as Moses is, is wrestling with the reality of following um, God through the wilderness, he says, how will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? unless you go with us, the presence of God. Or in the New Testament, the Apostle John begins his first letter and says, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship with God. And then in the second last chapter of the Bible, in Revelation 21, again, the Apostle John in his vision, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with Him and be their God. The presence of God. And it's this presence of God that is highlighted and celebrated in Ezekiel chapter 43. So, verse 7, I will live among the Israelites forever. And again in verse 9, I will live among them forever. This is the basic gospel promise. This is the gospel reality, not to believe in God, but to know God, to have fellowship with Him. Ezekiel's vision in these chapters was not to give guidance about how the temple should rebuild. There's not enough detail there. No clerk of works could take the information that he gives and put a temple up. 
There's no instructions for the people to build. Rather, the temple is God's gift to the people. The grace and the glory are His. And the God of grace and the God of glory wants to have fellowship with us. Jesus then took this on further when he described that he himself was the temple. In John chapter 2, he says, destroy this temple, referring to himself, and I will raise it again in three days. Jesus offered God's forgiveness. He brought to people the presence of God. So he, the meeting place now between God and humanity, is not in some special set-apart temple or any other particular building, but through Jesus, the Son of God, who died for us and who rose again. We have confidence, says the writer to the Hebrews, to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. It doesn't say we have to go to place X or place Y. There's not an annual pilgrimage to such and such. There's not time set apart in a particular building. There's not all kinds of ritual washings or anything to go through. It is through Jesus. He is the temple. He is the one where earth and heaven touch. And then... I think, astonishingly, the New Testament goes even further. And then the temple imagery is used not just with reference to Jesus, but then used with reference to Jesus' people, the believers, the Christians. And so, in 1 Peter 2, again, one of Jesus' apostles um, writing a letter, "'You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ.'" Or Paul in Ephesians, "'Consequently, you are no longer followers and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of His household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone.'" In Him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple to the Lord. And in Him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. And so we move as we go through the story of the Scriptures from God having touching His people in this particular special place at the temple to the temple being replaced to Jesus, and to that role being taken up by Jesus' followers. The people of God are His temple, His presence, the meeting place of earth and heaven. How is the world supposed to know that there is a God? How is the world supposed to know that God is here? Through the lives of God's people, who are to be the living embodiment of His presence. And so, the life of God, the presence of God, is not just a blessing that is offered to us. It's also a challenge for us to live His ways, to live out that reality. And so, in Ezekiel 43, between the words in verse 7 and verse 9 that I read about God promising to be with us are commands about how to live. 
And Peter, in 1 Peter 2, Paul and Ephesians also move quickly from the temple imagery and being the people of God to teaching about how the, the people of God are to live out His presence through their faithful living. But if 43, chapter 43 focuses in on the temple itself, so in chapter 47 we're reminded that this is not just some little happening in some particular place, but in fact for all the world. And the vision extends towards establishing a new paradise. The source of the river, verse 1 of chapter 47, is from the Lord Himself, flowing out from the temple into the world. The river gives life turns waste places to fruitfulness, because it's from the Lord, the Lord who brought the dry bones to life. This river is part of the life-giving, life-restoring, life-salvation of God. Now, this transformation of life, turning the waste grounds into places of fertility, turning the dead into the living, turning darkness into light, this kind of transformation can only come when God is at work, when God is given His place, when God is at the center. The temple wasn't so that God could just sit back and take all the praise that was going. Go on, bring me some more sacrifices, feed my ego a bit more. That's not it at all. It's God coming to us, being with us. And God's movement, um, chapter 47, is in the opposite direction. It's a movement out as the river of life flows into the world. And so, a church, the New Testament people, the temple of God, must have God's life-giving Spirit to offer the world. Otherwise, we are simply a church in name only. Oh, yes, we might help with food banks, with activities to help people feel welcome or whatever, and these things matter. They're important. But they do not fulfill all of our role and calling. Post-lockdown, we are not simply to get back to minding our own business, staying in our small corner, nor are we called to be a source of activism for activity's sake, or for this cause or that cause per se. The church, rather, is to be the way of the life-giving, life-transforming purposes of God being made real in the world. And we cannot do that under our own steam, which is why we both need to focus in and nurture the life of God, and also to reach out with His goodness into the world. Ezekiel 47 uses the imagery of the river and trees, and that imagery comes back a number of places later on in the Scriptures. Most explicitly, it comes in the final chapter in the Bible, Revelation 22. In certain respects, the rivers and the trees are opposites. A river begins from all over the place, different streams, a hillside pool, a little um, river rivulet here, and all coming together, building up into something big and strong. The tree begins with a single seed. Slowly it grows, putting out roots, then sends a shoot into the light above the ground. It becomes a trunk, and then limbs, branches, twigs, leaves, and so on. All of that from one seed. And the church is to reflect both of these things. The church, like a river, is to be the coming together of many, with different beginnings, different roots, different contributions, all flowing together, united in serving God. 
Though different, we belong to one another. We are to unite in a common movement, common purpose, to serve the kingdom of God in the world. But also, like the tree, the single seed is Jesus himself. He was sown in the dark earth, and from him came amazing growth outwards, incredible reach into all the world. It is in God's behalf that we are to announce to the world that our Lord is indeed loving, wise, just, and wanting our best, that through Jesus he has defeated the powers that corrupt the world, and that by his Spirit he is at work to heal and renew his creation. Through engaging in that call, we move ourselves and the world around on the path towards not only which God is calling us, but which God will finally and fully come bring to be. Now, the promises in these chapters, as Ezekiel looked forward, as he could see the words about exiles returning and promises beyond, it didn't mean that the exile came ended the next day. Nor did it mean that when the end of exile came and the people returned to Jerusalem, everything went well. Nor did it mean that when the Son of God himself came to establish his kingdom, he got it easy and didn't suffer. And it hasn't meant that since the time of Jesus there has been no suffering, no hardship in the church for the last 2,000 years. But a new day is coming. There may have been all kinds of disobedience and unfaithfulness and worse along the way, but the love of God will not be frustrated. Yes, there will be, and <clears throat> we're in one now, times of judgment, even judgment on the church. But ultimately, it's restoration that the Lord has in mind. And so he offers fullness of life, both now and in times to, years to come, and in his kingdom to come. In one sense, it should be no big deal at all that we can gather again in this building— what matters is gathering, and the gathering is for the Lord's pleasure, for His glory. And if our gathering is a genuine encounter with the living God, we shall enjoy His glory, and we shall want goodness and glory to flow into the world around, not offering the world simply some pleasant pastimes or serious help, but life life itself, the life of God, which flows out like that river, transforming wilderness to fruitfulness. That's our calling. That's our purpose. Can we join together? Can we unite in God's transformation, God's transforming call? to be his holy temple, to be his people, to be the people through whom the grace and the river of God, God's glory flow out, because the world needs it. Let us pray. Gracious God, for your promises of being with us, for your promises of drawing close, we give you thanks. We ask forgiveness for the times when we've made light of those, for the times when we've tried to keep you at arm's length. 
When the times when we've not bothered to notice whether or not you are active or involved in our lives and in our living. Lord, help us to change that. And help us through your Spirit to be drawn deeper into a relationship with you, deeper into a fellowship with you. Not something that removes us from life and living, but indeed something that enables us to live more fully and to engage with all that goes on around us. That we might be your people, your agents, your temple, your transforming source of life in the world not for our good, but for your glory. Amen.